Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your comments, your observations, your hot takes, your questions about tennis and other things. We are getting set for the Australian Open 2023 semifinals, women tonight, men tomorrow. 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab. I got 100 comments. Great engagement on this one. So thank you for everybody who weighed in and apologies to anyone who uh, I will not get to on this mailbag. Lots of comments coming in. To start, Ryan Merritt, has Tsitsipas looked impressive enough, in your opinion, to be worried for Djokovic? I think they, they've been by far the two most impressive in the tournament, but I'm not sure if Tsitsipas has enough to give the Joker serious problems. Just reading through the comments, that seems to be the biggest question that people have for me right now. And obviously, I, I think we'll get to a point that I will be previewing a Djokovic-Tsitsipas final. Obviously, that would be the situation that looks most likely right now. So, I'll go in more depth at some point. But ultimately... What I said before the tournament is if Tsitsipas, who has lost nine matches in a row to Djokovic, is going to beat Djokovic, it's likely going to be on a um, in, in more suitable conditions for Tsitsipas. And I still think that is pretty much the case. Like, I, I stand by that, especially even looking at the low bounce. I don't even think the low bounce is awesome for Tsitsipas because I feel like Stefanos' kick serve in better conditions can be a factor. And I think the, the weight of shot and the heavy topspin on Tsitsipas' forehand can be a factor, especially going cross-court uh, heavy to, to Djokovic's forehand. These low bouncing conditions, more it's not that they hurt Tsitsipas. I just think they're so great for Djokovic and the way he's been able to adapt to them and flatten them out, it seems like for the most part in these conditions, I don't think Stefanos' backhand is good enough at this time to actually beat Novak Djokovic. But should Novak be worried? Can Tsitsipas challenge him? Heck yeah. When you are hitting, when you have a weapon firing as well as Tsitsipas' forehand, with as well as he is serving, and as well as he moves... Tsitsipas is simply playing at too high a level right now for that not to be a challenge for Novak. This is not about how they match up. This is not about the head-to-head. -head. This is just about what level Tsitsipas is playing at. And it doesn't matter about the matchup. If a player is playing that well, it's going to be a difficult test for a Novak Djokovic. 
Long one here from Vishnu, who is a member. You can become a member by hitting the join button on PC. I don't think that join button uh, is available if you're watching on an iPhone or a mobile device. But if you're on a laptop, you will be able to see it. You can join uh, for $2 a month to support the channel. And I do appreciate it. And I give you priority in these mailbags. Although, uh, as you can see, I also will respond to many comments. You are under no obligation to become a member uh, to get involved in the mailbag. This one from Vishnu. Hi, Gil. I have a couple of questions on the first serve tactics. One, the first question is regarding the pace variation tactic on the first serve. For example, in cricket, fast bowlers who usually bowl around 140 to 145 kph suddenly bowls a slower ball around 110 to 120 kph as a pace variation tactic. And there are chances that the batsman who is expecting and prepared for a faster ball mistimes the slower ball and gets out. And this tactic is used frequently by fast bowlers and is quite effective. I feel that this tactic can be used in a similar way in tennis. For example, Kyrgios serves his first serve around 200 Ks. If he suddenly serves around 160 Ks, there are chances that the returner mistimes or mishits the return. And this can be used as a pace variation tactic. All right, before we get to the second one, response to that. Very interesting point. And I have seen it before. And it's funny you mentioned Kyrgios because I think Nick is the guy who I've seen use that probably more than anyone. I think it has something to do with the reaction time that the returner gets, which is unfortunately different than cricket and baseball. Because what you just described in cricket is very much the same thing in baseball where the change of speeds is key. And a fastball is often juxtaposed with the changeup. In baseball, that a changeup looks like a fastball, but it's about 10 to 18 miles per hour, probably not 18, 10 to 15 miles per hour slower. Sorry, I work in miles per hour, not Ks, uh, than a fastball. And that is how you get the batter uh, or the hitter to mistime the pitch. The distance between a server and a returner is is simply a lot further uh, than than baseball and cricket. And as a result, I think there is more time to recognize the off-speed ball and to, to make an adjustment with feet and timing. And I think that is why it is not as effective as it could be. But I have no doubt that that tactic could be used more. I also think there's a fear factor. There's a fear factor there where if the opponent is ready for it, it becomes very much an easy-to-return serve. If you are a server like Kyrgios, you think, wait a second, I'm getting unreturned served serves at 50%, at a 50% rate when I'm hitting my fastball, so to speak. So why am I going to hit my changeup and risk that I take away my chances of a free point if they're ready for it? Ultimately, I think it's an interesting point. I think they're... they're there could be some sports science about that. And as the analytics increase, this is the kind of thing we've seen in other sports. Uh, tactics emerge by numbers people showing and understanding that these things are effective. And it will be very easy as analytics and tennis increase for numbers people to take a look at this and determine if it is a good strategy to change up the speed. Uh, to, to take away pace off of the serve and if that would be effective. Second one here. 
Also, I wonder why players don't use the body serve so often, especially on the first serve. If the server is mostly serving his first serve on the T side or wide serve, the returner has to guess slash be prepared for two outcomes. But if the server also starts using body serve frequently along with T and wide serve, then the returner has to be prepared be prepared between three outcomes and it can make returning much more difficult. I'm going to skip the last part of this comment. Why don't people use the body serve more? I think it's underused. I, I always think it's underused. One of the only guys who uses it very, very frequently is Hugo Umber. By the way, Brooksby against Tommy Paul used it a lot on the ad side. So you will see usually very good servers John Isner, you know, Umber, Shelton. I, I think I think lefties. Nadal uses it in certain matchups on the ad side as well. Uh, they will use it more often. There are a couple of reasons why the body serve has maybe gone out of style. Uh, the biggest one is deep return positions. Body serve is much less effective against deep return positions. There's too much time to just get out of the way. Uh, you would never body serve Daniil Medvedev, for example. Completely stupid, would never work. Um... So that's a huge part of it. As returners have moved back, you're going to see less body serves. Again, fear. Players are scared. If players miss their spot, then you've just hit a really poor serve, right? Because, I don't know, a couple feet too far to the right or the left, and now you've served right into the pocket for the returner. So players are, are definitely fearful. Uh, but body serve is underutilized. I feel pretty strongly about that. The best servers use it, so... From the Louise. Hey, Gil, this AO has seen a lot of seeds on the men's side crash out very early. More than any Grand Slam I can think of in the last 15 years, I'd say. Do you think this is due to the ball changes some players mentioned? Or is the men's tour simply reaching a point where there is this much parity? Keep up the amazing work. Appreciate it. Why Why have we seen so many upsets? There have been a lot of questions about that. Tons, actually. In fact, more people asked about that in this comment section than, uh, than Tsitsipas. So I, was, I, I lied at the very start. Here's my best answer. There's less greatness at the top of the game right now. There's less greatness. Kaspar Ruud was a top four seed. You know... You have Nadal compromised. You have Alcaraz out. You have, you know, and then you have a guy like FAA. And you have a guy like Medvedev. And you have a guy like Taylor Fritz, who was a favorite to make the semis. You have a guy like Matteo Berrettini, who had high expectations. And these are excellent players. These are excellent, excellent players, but uh, they are not going to replicate the consistency or the dominance that the big four were able to replicate. Coverage of the 2023 Australian Open is brought to you by BetUS. For this year's AO, play with America's favorite sports book and get $125 extra on your first deposit using the link in the description and the promo code GILL. The tier one is no longer four players deep. It's one player deep right now, at the moment. Uh, without Alcaraz, without Nadal playing at at, at that level, uh, as we had in the first half of 2023, uh, with, with the state of Daniil Medvedev, it's one player. 
And that's why we're going to see more upsets. All right. From Marco B. I wanted your thoughts on the automated line calls. I personally thought we were in a sweet spot with having lines people and giving the players Hawkeye challenges. I just felt it was working really. And I love the drama with the players running out of challenges. I've also seemed to notice this year, there have been many times it has been wrong and there was an umpire that actually overruled the call in a doubles match, I believe. I also hate the voice. I'm from Australia and think that's the most annoying Australian accent to say out every time. All right, look, this is, a, this is one where it is pretty subjective, but I'm going to disagree. I think, for the most part, automated line calling has made the game better in the sense where uh, we're, we're not getting as much wrong. And it, it might feel like we weren't getting that much wrong with the challenge system, that whenever there was a questionable, questionable call, there would be a challenge. But we are kidding ourselves if we think that is the case. First of all, there was constantly a controversy of what came first, the call or the shot. And time and time again, there would be call, shot, the shot is out or the shot is in the net, it missed. And the umpire now has a decision. Are we going to replay the point? Or are we going to award the point to the player who hit the ball in, even though it was called out initially, uh, because their opponent missed the ball? And uh, umpires got that wrong all the time. They got that call wrong all the time. And even when they got it right, a lot of the time the players would argue and it would be this big thing. I mean, it was, it was almost every match there would be that kind of thing. Then there were scenarios where there was a clear advantage in the point and an incorrect call, despite the challenge overruling and overruling the call, the incorrect call clearly altered the likely outcome of the point. So now we are getting it right. And as far as the, the system being wrong often, I have not seen that. So perhaps, uh, I, I don't know, you know, maybe the system went haywire in that doubles match, but I have not seen that. So I think we're in a better place. My biggest concern is the path to become a chair umpire and the human loss of, you know, that whole economy on the tour. And what I compared it to is uh, Broadway in New York, where, uh, you know, the big, the big time, the big time uh, show business in New York, they wanted to uh, take away the live orchestras at Broadway shows that that could have been huge cost cutting for the theaters or for the production companies. I think the production companies, I'm not an expert in this space. If you just take away the live orchestra or the live band and you just play the score of the, of the show out of speakers, you're saving a crap ton of money. So they were going to do that. But the Broadway, uh, employees are unionized and they threatened to strike. They said, you can't do that. You can't do that because we are not going to work. If, if you do that, you must continue to employ these people. So that worked. That was effective. If tennis, if the players and the chair umpires and the lines judges and the, the court, the, the supervisors, you get the picture. If everybody was like unionized as a tennis community, uh, then there might have been some issues, you know, where uh, at least the officials, at the very least, the officials tried to protect those jobs. With that not being a factor, we're simply in a place where we've made the sport more fair. And 
is that at the the expense of entertainment value? Fractionally, but I would argue negligibly. Nobody is watching tennis matches for the challenges, right? Like it might have been something that people enjoyed, especially at live tennis with the slow clap. It might have been something that people enjoyed, but it is under no circumstance a deciding factor in the ultimate uh, and large-scale entertainment value of the sport. From member Asket, what do you think about the Netflix curse, this AO, with Felix being the only player who reached the fourth round? Is it just some coincidence, or is there something deeper at play here, i.e. the mental? Love your content. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, the Netflix curse is a coincidence. It's a total coincidence, you know? I mean, it would be one thing if players were, were losing early being filmed because an argument could be made that having cameras around, depending on your personality type and depending on your level of familiarity or, you know, how used to cameras you are, uh, that could present somewhat of a challenge, I would say. But with the episodes just coming out beforehand, um, I have a hard time believing that had any kind of real effect. And then you look at kind of the cast of characters and uh, I don't know, is it, you know, how big a shock really was, you know, any of these guys. I, Fritz was the one that surprised me most, I would say. Is that right? Let, let me make sure I have that right. I'm going to, I'm going to look at, let's take a look at the, uh, the Netflix curse. Let's go through it, shall we? I'm just trying to find a tweet because I know I might forget someone if I don't find a tweet that shows everybody. Let's see. Let's go to the Guardian. Come on, embed a tweet. Here we go. All right. Nick Kyrgios, injury. Bedosa, not that surprising. Uh, Fritz shocking. Tomjanovic, injury. FAA, fourth round exit for FAA. That's not shocking, especially the way he was playing. Sakari, not that surprising. Uh, Berrettini, lost to Murray. Not that surprising. Jabur, surprising. Surprising. Um, Kokonakis, not that surprising. And Casper uh, Rude. In context, not that surprising. By the way, though, I mean, Marketa Vondrosova has been a giant killer for a long time. She is known, especially on a hard court. Jabir is much worse on hard court than she is on grass and clay. I know that sounds weird. She was in the U.S. Open final, but it is the case. Uh, yeah, that that's a good, it's a good spot for Vondrosova. It's it's it still is surprising, but it's not insane. And then Fritz, you have the Australian factor, but I'd say Fritz out of all of those is the most surprising. So, yeah, I would say coincidence. Kind of a, a funny thing, though, you know. And uh, we'll, we'll monitor it, but it won't be long until someone will. We'll break that Netflix curse, I believe. You know, maybe we'll wait until the next batch of episodes. Next one is from Alan. This question isn't specifically about the AO, but why is the ace count used more frequently than total unreturned serves? Perhaps ace count is used to take the returner's ability out of the picture, but it would seem that this would affect both ace and unreturned count. Wouldn't it be more useful to count unreturnable serves than aces? 
100% it would be more useful. 100%. Because it, it captures the serve return dynamic in a more holistic way. The goal of stats, what are the goal of stats? The goal of stats are to tell us what is going on, whether it be for an individual match or over the course of a season. We just want numbers to help us understand what is going on. And aces are a small fraction of points. Unreturned serves are a much larger fraction of points, but we have the luxury of sorting those points into a neat category. And that category is serves that did not come back, serves that went unreturned. And that is a much more informative stat than aces. Maybe much is, is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's a more informative stat than aces. So yes, I mean, if we were trying to be smarter here, unreturned serves is a better number, much better number. Uh, why why was it originally aces? I mean, it's easier to track. Um, I suppose. I suppose that's why. I guess. I guess also when when aces first started being tracked, I'm sure there was less emphasis on statistics in the general sports landscape. So I don't know. By the way, though, before I move on to the next question. They are different stats. Uh, you, you did you did mention this, Alan, that you know the returner quality is part of it. So I will sometimes separate those stats consciously, and I will do so to illustrate uh, exactly that. You know the ability for a returner to make the ball in play when they have a chance to return the serve. Most aces are not the returner's fault, although there are some players who tend to get aced a lot or tend to not get aced a lot. And those things are not coincidences like Monfils and Medvedev, very hard to ace. Tiafo and Fanini, very easy to ace. Has to do with wingspan, how often they're guessing and where they stand. So if let's say both players have seven aces at the end of the match, but player A has 14 service winners, player B has only six service winners. That means that player A is likely just a more skilled returner uh, because even though they had the same number of aces, which means they're probably serving close to the same uh, potency, close. One player is making it whenever they have a chance, whenever they can get their racket on it. The other player is not making it when they get their racket on it. So it is worth separating out that stat sometimes. The next one comes from Lachi or Lachi. Hey Gil, as an Australian, it's evident that the events that the Australian crowd can become a large factor in particular matches. I watched Popperin beat Fritz, and it was evident that the crowd was getting to Taylor and swayed the match. They were booing him and making tons of noise on his serve. Are there instances where you think that this is unfair? And what can a player like Fritz do to do better to zone out the home ground crowd like Djokovic can? Well, let's answer the last part of that first. Because Popperin's next match was also in John Kane Arena. And boy, did Ben Shelton do a great job at dealing with it. Uh, I think the best way 
is to embrace the role. Embrace the role. You have to stay positive. The crowd is going to give you nothing but negativity. Negativity, negativity, negativity. So if you decide to try to be neutral about that, uh, that is, in in my opinion, and look, it depends on personality type. I know for me and I know for Shelton, uh, it wasn't that they tried to just zone it out. Like, let me just be no emotion, like stoic, like ignore, 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 ignore. You start to get in your own bubble, and I think that negativity can get to you. If the crowd is going to give you negativity, I think you fight that by introducing some extra positivity. And I would I would suggest the same thing to a player who uh, is frustrated with the play, with their opponents uh, saying "come on" after every single point. If the player is is yelling in your face after every single point, do it back. If the crowd is going nuts every time you lose a point, you go nuts every time you win a point. Make your own energy. Fight that thing. And Shelton was doing such a good job. Not egging on the crowd, not antagonizing the crowd, not pulling a Medvedev. Medvedev has been guilty of this often. Um, Djokovic was guilty of this early in his career at times. Hasn't hasn't been guilty of it in, in, in quite a while, in, in my estimation, unless I'm missing something. Um, don't antagonize the crowd, but be positive with yourself. Be vocal with yourself. If the crowd's going to be vocal, you got to match them. You got to match them by backing yourself. Be your own crowd. That's kind of my perspective. And Ben Shelton, who came from college tennis, he's very much used to that. He's used to being vocal and being positive, not only for himself, but for his college teammates. And he's used to doing that in a hostile environment. So now let me get to your first part of the question. Is this unfair? I would say no. I would say it's not unfair. In every sport, we've accepted that there are advantages to being at home. And statistically, these advantages are significant, especially in sports that are officiated. There is evidence that officials are indeed subconsciously swayed by crowds. And that's a big deal. Um, in tennis, I don't doubt that the same thing is largely true, although I think that there's a lot less evidence that crowds are statistically significant in willing players or, or helping players win. The history of French players at Roland Garros is pretty awful, actually. They all kind of struggle. It's extra pressure. That can be bad. But let's just assume that the crowd is a, an advantage for Popperin and a disadvantage for Fritz in this kind of match. Let's just assume that. We need to, as a sport, I think, allow for paying customers to have a good time. That's it. They've... And, and, I, and I also think we need to we need to be more open to to fun to fun and uh to me from an entertainment value that fritz popper and match uh or you know what let's say popper and shelton okay cuz cuz fritz is a big name that popper and shelton match you play that without a crowd 
and I have very I have little interest in in watching it compared to how much interest I have in watching it uh, in that electric John Kane arena. I'm sorry, like that is a huge deal for entertainment when you have those nat sounds and the feeling and the electricity of a big match with a vocal crowd. It enhances the product tenfold. So are, should I really, or should we really be concerned about what the effect of that is on Taylor Fritz? Sorry. This is a, a classic example of fairness is not always the most important thing in sports. This is the entertainment industry. And you cannot neuter or sully the energy of a crowd just to even the playing field. We don't do that in any other sport, and I don't see why we would want to do that in tennis. All right, uh, last one. Man, a lot of good questions I didn't get to, but got to wrap it up here. Uh, this one is from member Jack. Hello, Gil. Andy Murray and Kim Sears began dating in 2006. Djokovic and Yelena in 2005. Nadal and Maria, although I think, I don't know how to pronounce her, her nickname, X-I-S-C-A, in 2005, and Feder and Mirka in 2000. Do you think that this is a coincidence, or have their stable relationships been an important factor in their consistency? It's funny to think about. Anyways, keep up the fantastic work. This is such a, a, a great mailbag question. I don't think this is a coincidence. Um, I don't think the key to success is to have long-term relationships, uh, but I think a key to success on tour is is maturity. And I think oftentimes you'll see an elevated level of maturity go hand-in-hand hand with more serious relationships. And, and that is why it often takes people, and this is not a bad thing at all. This is probably a good thing. Uh, you often have, over the course of your life, less serious relationships in your teens, maybe slightly more serious relationships around college age. Uh, and then post-college, most people have their most serious relationships. And there are exceptions to that. It doesn't have to be like that. But we often see that play out because there is a correlation between uh, your maturity and how much you're willing to commit uh, in a relationship, generally speaking. So I don't think it's a, a coincidence that the big four have all had long-term relationships because I think their level of pro professionalism, their level of commitment, and their level of discipline and maturity goes a long way in how they're acting day in and day out uh, to give themselves the best ability to win. Uh, from the way they're taking care of their mental, the way they're taking care of their body, the focus they are bringing to their lives on and off the court. Uh, those things are the only reasons why they're able to reach the heights that they do. And I mean, hey, there are a lot of the a lot of the classic underachievers in tennis have clearly lacked maturity. And when I say the word underachiever, and I don't want to name drop here, I'm just not in the mood, but you guys probably can think of who I'm, who I'm, uh, some, some names that you could talk about here. I'm talking about players who clearly have a little bit more talent than what they are able to convert into their results. And oftentimes it's a maturity thing. It's a professionalism thing.
So maybe I'm maybe I'm out of my mind. Maybe I'm crazy. But I tend to think that these long-term relationships um they they do mean something. And by the way, most of these guys have had long-term relationships with many of the people in their teams, their physios, their coaches, their managers, agents, psychologists. Stability is a good thing, but stability takes maturity. And the big four certainly had those things in spades. Next one is from member RTG. Hi, Gil. Question about Murray. You seem to indicate in earlier videos that this AO run was somehow different slash more consequential than previous post-hip surgery major runs, but I don't really see why. He had one really big win, Berrettini, and was eventually out before the second week. Sure, the Kokonakis match was epic, but it all still led to Murray looking physically broken, losing in the third round. Are you still high on 2023, Murray? Yeah, this is a, a very fair comment, and I, I do appreciate it in these mailbags when you guys uh, kind of respond to things that, that I say uh, in, in other content, because uh, it's always a good way to kind of create that back and forth, which is the goal here. Very simple answer to this. I just think 2022, 2021, 2020, Murray, he's just not winning that Kokonakis match. He's simply not winning that match. So... You know, I would say if there's a criticism here, it's why did he have to go five and a half hours for Kokonakis uh, or with Kokonakis after the Berrettini win? Why did he fall down two sets to love? And would that be something that someone who is going to be seriously dangerous going to do? Would somebody do that or should Murray have done that? That's an interesting angle to this. So maybe that's the part where all of this is a little bit overhyped, and Murray never should have been in that position down two sets to love in the first place. But to me, 10 and a half hours on court heading into that third round match against RBA, it doesn't really matter who you are. You're not going to have enough in the tank to win that match. You're pretty much... There are some players who could do it, but that's why I give Murray a pass for that third round, and I'm impressed with the second round win because on the heels of a five-setter, Murray has suffered severely ever since that surgery. It's just really impressive to me that he was able to win that Kokonakis match. From House of Leaves, Hi Gil, do you think Rybakina has the potential to win multiple slams and challenge Sviantec's dominance? I do, actually. I'm not convinced about it. I'm not sold on it. But I do think the potential is there, especially because she is uniquely positioned to take advantage of Rybakina's uh, sorry, Sviantec's technical and surface-related weaknesses. It's going to be that much easier for Rybakina to have a say in this rivalry against Sviantec because in serving conditions, she has such a big edge over Iga. We saw that play out in this match where Iga, in their match at the Australian Open, where Iga dominated everything five shots or more. But because of the serve, Rybakina was able to play enough in those 0-4 through four rally lengths. And the serving advantage was so significant that whatever happened in the rallies didn't matter all that much in the ultimate outcome of the match. And you could see Rybakina building a, a very stable advantage in that area. And as a result, having success on certain surfaces where her serve is going to be very effective. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out.
from the man. Ben Shelton is the true next American for sure. He has a game that will allow him to have longevity, ample firepower, and great sense of competition. He breezed through the Future and Challenger Tour, which is not easy. His long run into the Aussie Open, while unexpected, shouldn't be surprising if you watched how easily he's dispatched his foes on the Challenger circuit. I think he will take Tommy Paul. If he doesn't, he's probably the most promising young talent, probably the, the next American to get a slam. Obviously, this comment before Tommy Paul uh, beat Ben Shelton. Look, I, I pretty much agree with all of this uh, because as much as Shelton's Australian Open draw was very favorable uh, and you're rarely going to get to a major quarterfinal without having to face better competition than Ben Shelton faced, it is still an, an unbelievable accomplishment to be in your second ever uh, major main draw You've been on the professional tour if you're Ben Shelton for five months and to be able to navigate that many best of five set matches in a row against top 100 opponents, even that is really difficult. And I agree with this comment that what he did at the challenger level, no joke, and the weapons are there. I mean, there have been some players who have had tremendous challenger success, uh, such as Talon Griegspoor. Or, I mean, I think he's the main one. I don't know. You could look at a Rindrick Nesh. You could look at a Sebastian Baez. Uh, less so Baez. I think Baez is, is going to have a, a really, really great career. Great career. Uh, but but some of these guys have not had the, the weaponry and the firepower that's so obvious with Shelton's game that is just going to give him such an immediate leg up. Uh, that you can't teach. And also the athleticism you cannot teach. There are technical aspects of his game that just need to be tightened up a little bit, particularly the backhand, backhand return. Uh, very high on Shelton. Really hard not to be high on Shelton. From member Racket Talk. Hi, Gil. Two questions. What do you make of Tsitsipas' backhand so far in this tournament? Do you feel he has gotten better at protecting that side? Uh, does his slice look more developed, etc.? Also, a trend with Tsitsipas seems to be he plays very well in the first half of the season, but then disappears post-RG. Do you think this is a function of surface changes or just weariness? I'll get to the second one in a moment. Tsitsipas' backhand, he lost the plot for a second against Sinner, where he started hitting it lower, flatter, faster. No good. No good. Trying to do too much with it. Uh, making unforced errors, not creating enough damage to make those unforced errors worth it. But all in all, I just think he's had a better mentality on it. That I'm going to play it with a good amount of safety and try to keep the quality on the cross-court trade, but be patient with it, not let it beat me, not let it miss. Uh, make sure to incorporate some variety on there as to not just go kind of blow for blow very monotonously. And as a result, I think he's protected it better. It's been a better shield for him. The goal of the Pass backhand, I say it all the time, is to give the forehand a chance to shine. That's all it needs to do. And I think he has done that well. The slice more developed? Mm, I'm not sure. Not sure about that one. In terms of him falling off after the beginning of the season, great point, excellent point. I think there needs to be some diagnostics there. He plays a ton through February, 
always does, always has. And uh, I would like him to, to change that, look into that, potentially change that. Because uh, it's going to be a busy clay court season for him. It always is. And it just feels like he comes out of clay court season with uh, a lot of mental fatigue more than anything. Maybe some physical fatigue, but it really seems like a lot of mental fatigue. I would like him to do some diagnostics on that. See what he can adjust in his scheduling. Or in something else. Maybe it's not scheduling. Maybe it's, I don't know, taking off days in, in other aspects or something. Uh, the second one is any chance you could bring on Jeff Salzenstein to, for a chat anytime soon with Federer's retirement and everything that happened in 2022. Would love to hear his perspective. So, yeah, I, I do get asked uh, oftentimes for, for Salzenstein to come on. We haven't spoken in a bit, but I will catch up with him. Uh, the, the real reason that you haven't seen Salzenstein on as much is because I, I just couldn't always count on him because he's such a busy guy, because he does, you know, his main focus is coaching. I couldn't always count on him to just watch the matches. And as a result, um, it wasn't always a, a reliable uh, a booking. Um, that, that's basically what it was. But I'm going to reconnect with Jeff and we'll see where he's at. From Grisha. This is basically like, do I think that the, I'll just read it. Hey Gil, how many upsets do you think are optimal for a Grand Slam in terms of how engaging that tournament is over the full two weeks? I found the first week of this AO really exciting with all the upsets, but I think we're paying for it with some slightly weaker round of 16 and quarterfinal matches with all due respect to those players. I do think this tournament has been uniquely bizarre in that most of the upsets seem to be concentrated in one quarter. Yeah, that fourth quarter with Fritz and and Berrettini and Rude, absolutely. Uh, I think this is what happens in all tournaments. You have the NCAA basketball tournament. That's a big example. It's a it's an event that is so uh, praised and there's so much enthusiasm about upsets in March Madness. But at the end of the day, what the TV partners want, what uh, CBS wants and Turner Sports want, who has the rights to the NCAA basketball tournament, they want Duke versus Kentucky at the end. Duke versus Kentucky. That Those programs are going to get the highest ratings and sell the most tickets. So while we love the upsets to give us something to talk about in the beginning of the of the of the event, uh at the end of the event, we want the powers. We want the elite to play each other. So that's just kind of how it is. Ultimately, the quarterfinal round was not great. There's there's no no way around that. It just wasn't great. But uh, let's see, you know, are we going to pay in the semis and the finals? Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Hey, Gil, would like to hear your thoughts on the Novak hamstring. I believe he is definitely injured, but that he loves playing up the injury, whereas most players tend to hide it. For instance, Fed's knee was bothering him since in late 2019 season. And his hand was bothering him since the 2018 grass season, but he never revealed it until it got so bad to an extent it significantly affected his game. Sure. I mean, I think of all of the Novak hamstring injury takes, this one is on the more sensible side of it, where clearly Djokovic is not doing 
everything he can on court to minimize the drama, right? To minimize what his opponent sees. It's not something that Djokovic is making an effort to do. There is a lot of stretching going on. There are medical timeouts. There is yelling to the box. There is after, you know, after he has to sprint or after he has to, you know, slide or stretch. We see him doing very a lot of funky things after the point uh, to kind of show, ooh, that that hurt. Ooh, that was uncomfortable. He he is showing these things very very outwardly. And there are some players you you have to believe who would uh, would choose to to take the lengths to not show any of those things. So, I mean, you can you can make your own conclusions about that. Are you okay with Are you okay with that? Are you do you have a problem with that? I mean, you can I guess make your own conclusions about that, but uh, that's that's kind of a an interesting point. That's kind of what Taylor Fritz said. Fritz went on Twitter and he said, "Look, lots of players have injuries of very varying severity all the time. Some players show it more than others, and that's kind of fine." At the end of the day, my my take ultimately is if you are bothered as an opponent by by Djokovic stretching or making his injury very apparent, if that affects your game, that's your fault. You have to, first of all, be prepared for that going in, and you have to just block it out and play your game. Because clearly during the points, especially in crunch time, Novak is extremely hard to beat. So if 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 you're going to let that affect you, that's on you. But is it fair to say that Novak doesn't try very hard to hide when things are bothering him? That has always been the case. Whether it be the wind, whether it be an umpire's decision, whether it be someone in the crowd, Novak is expressive and emotional and sometimes dramatic. It's how he is. It's how Serena is. It's how Novak is. It's how Andy Murray is. It's how many, many players are. You can choose to like it. You can choose not to like it. That's your prerogative. From Rittenkar, a question about Medvedev. I understand that people have started playing him better. By now, Medvedev surely knows it, that players are going to come to net, use serve and volley if needed, attack his second serve, etc. Why is he unable to counter these? He used to be good at problem solving, even within a match during his 2019 and 2020 runs. Well, I mean, when it comes to the return of serve, he has some technical issues there. I'm going to keep this short and not go on and on. The biggest thing with the return in his court position is he he swings very long. He takes very full swings. So in order for him to adjust his return position, he also needs to adjust his technique and learn how to abbreviate the swing. And uh, that is why it is, that's why it's more challenging for him, ultimately. From Chris Bissett, 
Hi, Gil. It may be slightly unfair to ask this after such a brutal loss to a lights-out Djokovic, but in terms of tennis level, is Demonor close to reaching his tennis ceiling? The loss to Djokovic only highlighted to me that Demonor lacks weapons on the court, and it appears compared to guys like Runa and Alcaraz, who scarily enough are only beginning to live up to their potential, Demonor is much closer to maxing out his upside, yet not in a way that has been as fruitful or as impactful as those younger players. At 23 years old, it's easier said than done for Demonor to develop weapons to restructure his game around. Uh, what would Demonor need to do to progress from being a consistent top 25 player to a genuine threat at the big tournaments and ranking closer to the top 10? Look, I, I think you're on it. First of all, I think we can just look at the results for Demonor and we can see that there's there's no real upward trajectory going on here. And if you ask me, like, where can Demonor improve his game? I, I don't know. Uh, so I, I fully agree with you. He's very, very close to his ceiling, and I, I don't see him being all that, you know, I don't see him reinventing himself anytime soon. Uh, you want to look at year-end rankings? 2018, 31. 2019, 18. 2020, 23. 2021, 34. 2022, 24. So he has been between 31 and and 18 for for five years now with no sign of that changing. That's who he is. Unless he finds a way to increase his baseline power, I, uh, I don't see that changing. That's all I got for this one. Semi-finals coming up. Hope you enjoy, everybody, and hope you enjoyed this video. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.